Thank you very much. First of all, Akarsa Tov to uh, Rachel and to her committee for organizing such a wonderful conference. And of course, for all the panelists, the experts who've taken their valuable time to really provide state of the art understanding about the art of parenting. A special Akarsa Tov to Murenu Harav of Tender, who um, aside from delving into current and futuristic biotechnologies and presenting the halachic perspective, he never excludes the Musa lessons from all of these things. And we uh, appreciate that very much. Okay, I'm going to begin by talking about the epigenetic revolution, the biological programs that control human genetics. I'm now a professor at Turo, Stella, Columbia, but I'm also a columnist for the Scientist magazine. It's about 1.2 million readership, and there's a lesson here. I used to write for them one or two articles a year, and the last article I wrote in the summer, I decided to take a chance, and I included a little bit of Torah on the definition of personhood. Once they read that, they said to me, okay, now you can write a monthly column. So you never know what a Kodesh Baruch has in mind. Uh, where are we going? Okay, let me begin by giving you a, just a very brief introduction to what genetics is. And I'm going to tell you stuff that you know, and hopefully some stuff that you really don't know. So, when you think about genetics, this is the DNA, our genome. It's like letters, composed of four different letters, and there are three billion of these letters. They serve as the set of instructions of what we are and who we are, etc. And um, when you think about it, you can look at it in two different ways. This was called the genotype. What are these letters? What do they mean? But not these set of instructions don't always present themselves. And when they present themselves in physical, behavioral stuff, that's called the phenotype. And the other thing you should know, the genes come in different flavors. They're called alleles. They determine eye color, hair color, height, intelligence, susceptibility to diseases, and uh, sexuality, depression, longevity. All these things comprise genetics. Now, when you analyze DNA, today we're in a new revolution. Everybody's going to 23andMe and going to Ancestry.com to understand their origin, their ancestry, their future diseases. And I think there's a lesson here that's said in this cartoon. No need for a decision, King Solomon, we can do a DNA test. That's not 100% accurate, but that's what's happening today. Okay, let me tell you some things that are written in all the textbooks which are probably wrong. You should understand this. The first thing is that your genetic code determines your destiny. That's not true. A person could have mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, but only have an 80% chance of developing ovarian or breast cancer. So genetics is really a probability. We have to understand what is the probability with these genes and this and the gene regulation that leads to a phenotypic expression. The second traditional dogma, which is probably wrong, is that 5% of your DNA is used to provide genetic information, and the rest is called DNA junk. If you calculate what how many letters comprise of the 21,000 genes that we have? It only represents 5% of the whole genome. What is the rest of the genome there for? And we know that God does not create junk. And only in the last few years are we beginning to understand that these non-encoding regions in our chromosome are 
mediate what's called gene regulation. Gene regulation is what turns on and turns off genes. I'm going to only talk about one aspect of that, that's called epigenetics. The third thing, we all were taught um, that mitochondria, that we have mitochondrial DNA that all of us possess comes from our mothers. Every cell in our body, almost all cells in the body, have two sources of genetic information. All the chromosomes are in the nucleus, and you have a little bit of DNA, 37,000 base pairs in an uh, organelle called the mitochondria, which is like the battery, provides all the power. And we were all taught it's all maternally transmitted. But last week, from China, and we love China because they always enhance our uh, challenges in bioethics, there's evidence of paternal mitochondrial transmission. How common, how rare, I don't know. But this is tremendously important. The fact that they have identified three unrelated families, 17 members, in which the DNA from the mitochondria came both from the father and came from the mother. This has tremendous halakhic implications, as you can imagine, but that's not the course of this year. And the final thing is that the father of genetics, everybody knows, is Gregory Mendel. Again, that's not true. The father of genetics is Yaakov Avinu. And his understanding of dominant and recessive traits with the sheep, as well as understanding the role of epigenetics to determine gene expression. The other thing you have to know before I start about epigenetics is that mutations can be both beneficial and harmful. And this is a very important process that takes place. This is a very harmful consequence of a genetic mutation, but also genetic mutations that can benefit your health and your lifestyle. Now, what is epigenetics? We're in parshas of Yesha, These are parshas of dreams. I had a dream. I had a dream that a smicha student came to the base medrash, went to Shammai and says, teach me genetics, I'll regal achas. And Shammai said, I can't do that. You have to take our course in human biology. It's your course. Only then can I begin to discuss with you. And of course, he was disillusioned, and he went to Hillel. And Hillel said, whoa, I'll teach you genetics. And this is what he said. He said, engage in gene therapy that benefits humankind and does not harm people. This is the basic le lesson of gene regulation. The rest is all explanation. Go and learn. Now, pedagogically, I agree with, Becha, with Shammai. However, for this conference, I have to have limited time to just give you a glimpse of what epigenetics is, and I, I apologize for that, but if you're interested, there's a lot more you can learn about. So what is epigenetics? Epigenetics is the regulation of gene expression without changing the code. We don't change the letters and, or the sequence. And it's in a sense, if you look at the genes as the hardware, epigenetics is the software, the program that tells you what turns on and what turns off. An analogy is the tikkun, right? We all know that the letters of the Torah, there are no spaces, there are no sentences. That's a DNA sequence that's alluded to by the Ramban in this introduction to Bereshit. But the trap instructs us how to read the Torah, how to understand what the Pesukamah, what it means. That's the epigenetics. So, what is, why is epigenetics important, and especially for this conference? First of all, all of you began as a fertilized egg. 
the same genetic information as all of your cells, right? And your oocytes, or the oocytes in that, in that fertilized egg, had to reprogram all the DNA to make all the genes available for embryological development. It allows the embryo to develop into over 200 different types of cells. Your muscle cell is different than your nerve cell. It's different than your immune cell. What makes the difference? Because your muscle cell has its own genetic signature, what genes are turned on, what genes are turned off. Your skin cells has a different signature, what turns your gene, which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off. Epigenetics also underscores how to generate stem cells from adult cells. This is very important. You're going to be hearing, I think, a lot about stem cells. Understand that when you take an adult cell, you have a signature. So it could be a blood cell, it could be a, a fibroblast, a stem cell. And by generating a stem cell, we have to, again, turn off all of these epigenetic mechanisms. Take that cell, like, almost like a fertilized egg, where all the genes are available. That's what a stem cell really should be. And the gold standard of stem cells, you're not going to read about this, is of course the fertilized egg. Also, understand that epigenetics is, can be hereditary. In other words, things that you put in your genome, which are the software, you can pass on, not 100%, but there's certain probability you can pass on to not only to your children, but to your grandchildren as well. And for example, for me as a Holocaust survivor, I was always intrigued by the study that descendants of Holocaust survivors have lower levels of the hormone cortisol. And these low levels of cortisol help them recover from traumatic events. This is an example of a hereditary process of epigenetics. Secondly, thirdly, epigenetics underscores the fact that I told you beginning, genetics is only a probability. And why is it a probability? Because unless we know these epigenetic mechanisms, we cannot predict very accurately what is going to happen. Give you some examples. Identical twins on the left. They, they have the same genetics, and they can be born with different hair colors. Why? Because of these epigenetic these programs. And this cartoon says a lot. You don't look anything like your long-haired, skinny kid I married 25 years ago. I need a DNA sample to make sure it's still you. That's because you change. And that's why identical twins will change as they go through life. The classical example of, bio, of uh, epigenetics, of course, the honeybee. A queen bee lays eggs genetically identical. If you feed one of these eggs royal honey, royal jam that the queen makes, it will turn into a queen bee. If you feed the larvae with regular honey, it turns into a worker. They're very different. And the only difference was the diet. The genetics are the same, the epigenetics are different. Now what are the medical implications of epigenetics? Why don't all gene mutations lead to disease? First of all, I told you, BRCA1 is a fine example. Only 80% of them develop cancer. Gaucher's disease. This is a very common disease among Ashkenazi population. And you can have a person with, it's a recessive gene. It means you need two mutations. And you can have people that have both mutations, and they're symptomatically free. There's no symptoms. You can have somebody else who has the same mutations, and they express the disease either early in life, teenagehood, later in life. What determines the expression of these disease symptoms? It's the epigenetics. Tay-Sachs. We all were taught that if you have the two mutations of this recessive disease, an embryo will 
past six months. But in the last couple of years, we've discovered that there are women who have both mutations and they live to be 20 and 30 and they develop what's called late onset Tay-Sachs disease. How is that possible? And now we're beginning to understand what's happening here. New studies are coming out said that if you, that if you alter the epigenetics of a child, it could lead to autism. And finally, this is incredible that there are many natural compounds from foods that have implications and effects on your epigenetics. So in a sense, what epigenetics is, it reformates, it reformats the principle of nurture and nature. What you eat, where you live, who you interact with, when you sleep, how you exercise, and even aging, affect the health because of these epigenetic mechanisms. This says a lot. Damn you, epigenome. All right, let me tell you just in a minute what the mechanism is. Here's your DNA. It starts from your chromosome. You can unwind it. Every cell, if I would unwind your DNA from every cell, it would be about six, about six meters long. How does it condense? There are proteins in the, in the cell called histones, and they wrap around the DNA to condense it. And if you unwrap it, and you look at... Oh, do I have a pointer here? Oh, no, where's the pointer? Is there a pointer here? No? Pardon? Okay, there's no pointer? No? All right, if you look... Okay, let's try this way. So, one of the things the cell can do, can, does, it can add a methyl group to the actual letters of the DNA. So if you have a sentence that says, the cat is running in the, in the gene, and you put one of these methyl groups on the word the cat, that sentence will not be read by the cell. So putting a methyl group can inactivate a specific gene. The second thing that it can do is, oh, there's the one. Ah, fantastic. Is epigenetic factors can also affect these histones. These are histones proteins. And if I tag these with certain epigenetic markers, I can make the histone turn off the gene, or make a histone turn on a gene. This is the basic mechanisms, the biochemical mechanism of how epigenetics works. What is the impact of lifestyle on epigenetics? This is very important for this conference. First of all, lifestyles can activate genes in certain regions of the brain that are associated with pleasure and reward, and that leads to an increase in a monogamous type of behavior in marriage. Many articles on that. Furthermore, if you're obese, it increases the likelihood of your children and your grandchildren to become obese. Certain diets increase the resilience against stress and reducing depression in women and their children. And of course, what this leads to is a very important principle you should take home, is that the ideal biblical neutral epigenetic diet, that's a Shevaminim. Here's a clear example how the Shevaminim can really influence your health in concrete epigenetic matters. Okay, continuing with lifestyles. Stress during pregnancy increases the chance of, of the child developing disorders. Maternal anxiety and depression increases obstetric complications and the risk of schizophrenia or depression in the child. Now this is interesting for us. Limiting fasting, now they didn't study when we fast, but they said limited fasting will increase your chances of living longer. So make sure you're mocked on tissue, on, you know, tissue bread and your kipper and all that stuff, stuff. And finally, an obese grandfather can make their grandkids more likely to develop diabetes.
lack of sleep has been linked to weight gain, reduction of lean mass, and increased risk of diabetes. Regular exercise can affect the sperm of men and significantly impact the mental fitness of their offspring. Cuddling babies can help them grow up to become adults. These are all the recent studies that we're beginning to understand. And I'd like to conclude with a proposal. I'm not sure this is true, but just like we know there are lifestyles that affect our epigenetic outcomes, I think there are what's called spiritual epigenetics. Can mitzvah, doing chesed, doing tzedakah also affect who we are, and what genes are turned on, and what genes are turned off. Rav Kellner's very famous explanation of Kain Behevel, Kain says to Kaddish Baruch you're blaming me for killing Hevel? You created my genes! I have these violent genes! And what does Kaddish Baruch say? Yes. I gave you genetic predisposition to certain behaviors, but I also gave you the attack, Timshavol, the power to control them. And I propose to you, what is that power to control these genes? Epigenetics, lifestyle. The Sefer Chinuch has a wonderful story. He rarely writes stories, but he has a story number 16, where there's a community, and there was a man in the community, a tzaddik, he sat in the base of Medrash, stuck in the chesed, and there's another man in the community, a very evil person, murdered, killed, stole. And the king of the community says, let me try an experiment. And he took his guards, and he took that evil person and put him, forced him to stay in the base Medrash, and engaged in stucco. And after six months, that man converted to be a tzaddik. So we see some allusions to this. I think what's really interesting is Rav Sajigon. Rav Sajigon says an unusual statement about the greatness of Hanach, who never died, as we know. And he says, Hanach's greatness was that he introduced the power of education according to the nature of the student. Hanach Lenar Al-Pidarko. Now, if he were here today, he would add one word. Epigenetic nature of the student. So in summary, what I've told you today is that there are many mechanisms by which the human body can regulate gene expression. I've just mentioned one, epigenetics. Epigenetics destroys the idea that we are bound by our DNA destiny. And I propose to you, can mitzvahs and chesed control gene expression via epigenetic pathways? And if you give me a $2 million grant, I'll prove it to you. I'll take Rishayim and Sadiqin, and I'll show the epigenetic differences. And finally, we're going to have Rav Pellish going to talk about the halakhic implications of epigenetics. And after he speaks, we'll answer questions. And this is a very important cartoon. You gave them free will, now they're bound to get into trouble. Now, I'm giving you the answers to all the questions that you're going to ask. And that's said in this cartoon. If they ask you anything you don't know, just say it's due to epigenetics. Thank you very much.
Kappa Chi and I <clears throat> have been together for many years. This is the first time when we divided our presentation a little differently. Usually it's a 50-50 deal, both on the scientific basis and on the halachic evaluation. So Hashem, Dr. Loichi, could handle both aspects. Today he decided to divide it more strictly. Dr. Loichi is to handle the scientific basis. I will present the impact of epigenetic, excuse uh, the expression, theory, uh, not, not fact yet, uh, epigenetic theory as it impacts on halacha lamase, meaning the actual practice of halacha today. Yesterday, towards the end of the Torah reading, we read that this Yehuda Shalach Lefon of El Yosef Lehoros Lefon of Goshna. Yaakov sent Yehuda before he rose, he, he, he left for a meeting with his son Yosef. He sent Yehuda to establish, Rashi says, Lahoros the fun of Lisakin based Talmud Sheshom Tetsei Hova to establish a yeshiva. You cannot enter into a new community, new values, without being prepared. What was missing in the time was Yeshiva University. Sent Yehuda to establish a place, Lahoros Lefonov. It's interesting, a slight variation in the text of Rashi is quoted in the Lekartov. There the language is, say Lefonov, the Erez Goshen, Sheshem, Hoyu, Avoseinu, Oskim, the Chochmasatova. That expression, Chochmas HaTorah, is the basis of our Torah life today. We don't have Torah to cover everything in epigenetics. We don't have Torah to respond to everything that's developing almost on a daily basis. New concepts, new ideas, they've suddenly taken away genetics and substituted epigenetics. It would seem that the genes really don't do too much. What seems to be do, every, do everything is the epigenetics. Why? The epigenetics tells the gene what to do. To be there, and not to do anything, 
doesn't give you a position in our world life. How do you respond to that? What we need is to understand We won't find in the Shulchan instructions for everything that we're confronted with today. But we are taught the Torah. And the Torah gives us gives us an approach with limits. This I know is forbidden. This much I know is permitted. And this area, I don't know whether it's permitted or forbidden. And therefore, what do you do? You go ahead and consult with people who've been studying Torah for all their lives and have been imbued with Chochmas HaTorah. That's the consequence of Torah study. See, I'm going to go ask a Shailah to Rav Moshe, my great father-in-law, Zatzal. What, what does Rav Moshe know about current medicine? Rav Moshe uh, had, to, had to rule. We'll get back to it in a minute. When is a person dead? Let me tell you what happened. I was current bystander the whole time. The question was posed to him. mid-1970s he did not know how to answer there was nothing absolute in the Torah that would instruct him yes or no on any issue so what actually happened I arranged for every professor, chairman in Albert Einstein College of Medicine to come to his house and talk to him. That was a time when Albert Einstein people were actively involved in the kidney transplant work. And critical in any transplant work <laughs> is to know whether the donor is dead or not. Two years passed by before he gave an answer and said that respiratory death is halachic death. By the time the Harvard criteria were already announced, it didn't satisfy him that, that the great Harvard gave a definition. He had to come to his own conclusion based upon the Chochmah Satova. Issue arose 
that has not been resolved yet. As our, our biology pushed forward, we suddenly realized that you can perform fertilization outside the body. And the people in England first came up with it, in vitro fertilization, and the development of an of a embryo when the two people never saw each other. Sperm can be sent at a distance, eggs can be sent at a distance, you can have the, the mother in one part of the world and the father in another part of the world and a baby is born to them. What is the significance of Pihalochia? Is that permitted or not permitted? What I mean to say, is this a, 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 a halakhically legal birth? Or must you have a husband and wife together? in order to have a legal, halakhically legal birth. To this day, there are bonim, largely in Eretz Israel, who claim when you do an in vitro fertilization, there is neither a father nor a mother. The baby is born without parents. And they get to a, 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 a specific
Lakewood, a child was born. The child, similar to what, what one of the scenes that Dr. Loiti presented of a two-headed baby, not a two-headed baby, but two babies joined, Siamese twins. Siamese twins with the circulatory system so constructed that one baby had an incomplete circulatory system and could not survive alone. Attached to the other baby, both were alive. The one heart, a multi-chambered heart, actually seven chambers in the heart, uh, was sufficient to provide circulation for both. The only way any one of them could survive is if the Siamese twins were separated, causing the immediate death of the one with the incomplete circulatory system. But that baby was alive. It was alive based upon the one heart until it would, the heart would give out. At that point, both babies would be died. Both babies would have died. I remember the case. The baby was born El Hashanah. The answer was given, are you permitted to separate the children? Was given the day after Simchastova. During that period of time, the two weeks or so period of time, we met, we meaning I and my sons, met with my father-in-law, every single night. At the end of the meetings, during which time, every question that was asked was answered. My father-in-law was not prepared to give an answer yet. At the end, of the period of time, came to the conclusion that this is no different than a mother-baby relationship. If God forbid, as happened not so long ago in Nancy Soil, a baby's life was endangering the life of a mother, that's why they did a cesarean on the mother that was wounded, that was killed there in, 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 the, in, in the attack there in Eretz Israel. In that case, the mother was providing the life to the baby. The baby was endangering the life of the mother. The doctors felt that by removing the baby, 
the mother's life would have a better chance. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way in both sides. But the permissibility for doing the cesarean section was based upon the desire for the mother to have a better chance to live. Because the mother was providing the life for both. My father-in-law made that connection to the case at hand. Two babies joined. One baby is providing the life of both. That baby was now classified as the mother baby. And the other one was the baby baby. It's permissible to take the life of the baby in order to save the life of the mother. Where do you find that in the Torah? The answer is, it may not be in the Torah, but it's in Chochmas HaTorah. In studying Torah, you make your connections, you make your, your, your conclusions based upon the basic principles that you study from the Torah. The problem is that you need Amelos Batola. You need to do the homework. Part of our problem today is the inability to find people who are willing to devote their lives to the Chochmas HaTorah. I don't know how far advanced it is, but in, in Eretz Yisrael, there's a relationship being developed between this yeshiva and the Technion in trying to form a, a new organization called Beismetuj Govoa Litova Bahalocha. Their goal is to take Tamidi Chachamim and make them expert in the modern shyness of medicine. In order to do that, you have to have people willing to devote their energies to both aspects of Torah. Torah as, as, as taught in traditional way, and Torah as it is in practice in the lives of our people. We have, in, in the Torah, we have uh, a wonderful, wonderful instruction. In B'chukosai Telechu, Besmismosai Tishmeru Vasisemosam. Torah says, you should follow my commandments, Telechu, so what's you said it you observe my mistress what is the first few words so Rashi says it means and anyone who's been in the yeshiva has heard that exhortation endless times Remember, the Rebbe says you have to be Amelim Batolo. 
What does Amelim Batova mean? You have to shuckle very vigorously. Right? That's Amelim Batova. That uh, fulfills the requirement of shuckle, you shuckle, hashol. What's Amelim Batova? Amelim Batova, Rashi says, it means Amelim Batova, Lishmo Ulekayen. To know how to do something. You cannot expect a total view of epigenetics without someone knowing what epigenetics is all about. Who has time for both? The answer is, you better have time for both. Our life depends upon it now. As our life is impacted upon by new findings, Either we have the people who can handle both, or we will be left behind. Our new generations won't follow us. The greatest of our generations has been, we've always had people who could do both. The people may not have had the formal degrees, but my father-in-law's analysis of brainstem death, coming to that conclusion, after two years of study, during which, during which time I sat with him with an anatomy book showing different parts of the brain and what each part of the brain is supposed to be doing, etc. It took him two years before he was comfortable enough to say, I understand whatever there is to understand. We have a requirement. The requirement is to know what to do. Rashi, at the end of Shmini, after discussing kosher and non-kosher animals, not kosher and kosher fish and birds, etc., etc., then the Pusik says, Lahavdil benatomi benato, the very last Pusik in Shmini. You should, on instruction, that's a mitzvah, to separate the kosher and the non-kosher. So Rashi asks, that's what you were talking about in the whole Parshish meaning. From the very beginning, you were telling me kosher and not kosher. So what's that last exhortation? Lahavdul benatomi benatol. Why does that come to answer? And Rashi says something enigmatic, but sums up all that I want to say to you. He says, Lahavdil means benishrat choti shokon a shokhi checks at an animal and he's supposed to cut through 51% of the trachea and the esophagus. He only cut through 50%. He thinks, he thinks it's 51%, but it could be 49%. So he comes to the rabbi and say, Here, here's the chicken. Tell me, is it kosher or not kosher? So the rabbi says, you're asking me, what am I supposed to know? How am I going to measure it? With a tape measure? You measure, measure it with a laser beam? You have to measure it somehow. So as she says, you should know. I'm asking you to differentiate between 
a donkey and a cow. Any idiot can differentiate. He came to the log because he has a problem. Is it 50% no good? Is it 51% kosher? How is the rabbi supposed to know? The answer is you better know because you're the rabbi. Someone has to know. And when Kodesh Vohu gave that halacha, it is, I expect you to learn how to do it. Our Melim Torah is not to know what the Torah said. Our Melim Torah is to know how to apply what the Torah says. This is the problem that faces us today. That, that, that project that I made quick reference to, it seems to be uh, developing nicely, wherein there will be Talmidi Chachomim will come to a new kind of medical school. By the way, the, I think the, the force behind it is maybe a graduate of Yeshiva is uh, Rabbi David Fools, yeah, who's very active in Avalanche College of Medicine. Yeah. The, the goal of the project was, or is, to make it possible for someone to, to be able to answer the question, is it 50% or 51%? Basically, there is much more that has to be covered. Epigenics is still too young, not easy to assimilate in the knowledge that we have. To take my friends of the DNAs and make them into secondary citizens waiting for instructions from epigenetics is difficult to swallow. Nevertheless, if that's what it's going to be, in Mr. I hope we will have the ability to answer. So what does the Torah say about it? Thank you. I'm the president of the Medical Ethics Society. Um, thank you. I, we have a little bit of time, maybe for one or two questions. Does anyone have any questions? Given the information that Dr. mentioned, that there are apparently some initial epigenetic findings in terms of how the mother should behave during pregnancy and shortly after pregnancy.
Torah says that it's forbidden for a person to damage someone else. And the Isu Bahazik Chavevo. Bahazik Asmo caused himself that damage. Interesting enough, is a controversy between the two and the Shukhanor. On that basis, Rabbi Feinstein Zatzal didn't want to prohibit smoking. But when it came to marijuana, he came out with a strong prohibition against marijuana. That's pretty some time back. But I think the most violent language I ever saw in print from the name of my father was uh, his children on marijuana. You can damage yourself a little bit. <laughs> That's called under the rubric of Shomel Psoyim Hashem. Not everybody can have the best health practices. Therefore, we have differences. But the duty to have good health practices lest it impacts upon the next generation, this is now becomes a new issue. It's not Lahasik Asmo. The person says, there, I want to overeat. I don't mind being a little fat. Comes along the... My good friend, John Lurkey, and says, but if you overeat, your children will also overeat by epigenetic transfer, and they therefore will most likely come down with diabetes. Now we have a new issue. It's not you want to overeat. You want to damage a new generation? You can't damage a new generation. So that the whole issue there now of epigenetics now comes into a new, a new aspect of it. If I'm impacting on somebody else, then I have new prohibitions are coming. It's no longer a voluntary act on your part. This is part of my, my, my uh, concern. How are we going to teach this epigenetics? Will we teaching the yeshivas? Remember, if you overeat, you violate a halacha. If you work on Shabbos, you violate the halakha. It's the same halakhas. Are we prepared to accept that? If we are, with the certitude that seems to be developing in the field, indeed, we no longer have the right. I can damage myself a little bit, not so terrible. I have to damage myself and guarantee it doesn't damage anybody else, <coughs> comes along epigenetics and says, but you're going to damage the next generation. Two generations, three generations, but a few more generations will suffer from your overeating. Therefore, you can't overeat. So now we have to start teaching. Right from grade one in the, in the yeshivas, remember, you cannot light fire on Shabbos, you cannot fix a broken bicycle on Shabbos, and you cannot overeat, another plate of salt is not for you. 
It's an Isur Daraisa. Good morning, everyone. Uh, like I said, my name is Rachel Samarov. I'm the president of the Medical Ethics Society. Um, I hope you enjoyed the first panel. Uh, Rev. Tendler, Dr. Loiki, thank you so much. On behalf, yeah.